Well, let's stay standing and let's take our Bibles once again. And we're going to turn them this morning to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. We'll read uh, in verse 30 and we'll read down through verse 13 of chapter 10. So beginning in Romans chapter 9. Here is God's word to us for today. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray together. Lord, we once again, as we come to this portion of the service where you speak to us through the ordained means of the preaching of your word, uh, that you have ordained, that you have set aside for this particular purpose, Lord, we pray that you would bless us. We pray, Father, for him who speaks a weak vessel, Lord, we pray that you would use him uh, by your grace and through your spirit to speak to us uh, from your word today, and we pray that you would help us all to rejoice in your word and in the grace that you have shown to us through Christ. We pray that you would use these words this time, Lord, for our good and for your glory, and we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You may be seated. As you do so, let me remind you to keep your Bibles out. I'd like to remind you of that. I know, I remember growing up in a church where, and I have been to churches where people hear the the reading of the passage and then close up their Bibles and put it aside, um, often because it's never going to be referred to again. Um, 
Thankfully, that's not the case here, and this morning we're going to be looking at this passage, so keep your Bibles out and your eyes on them as we work through this. It was about midnight in the city of Philippi. Most everyone was already asleep, but if you had been there on this particular night and were to listen very, very closely, you might have heard a sound, a strange sound coming from the local jail, an unexpected sound, the sound of singing. It certainly was unexpected to the jailer working that particular shift. Even more unexpected was the earthquake that suddenly struck, and the jailer's surprise turned to terror when all of a sudden all of the doors in the jail were opened. You probably recognize that story from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16, and and the jailer, of course, thinking that all the prisoners had escaped, was ready to kill himself because he knew that that was going to be the result anyway if the prisoners had escaped. But then a voice called out and said, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And Luke relates the fact that in that incident, through that incident, that God worked sovereignly on the heart of that jailer. So that when he brought Paul and Silas out and uh, looked at them and talked to them, his question wasn't, What happened? It wasn't how, how did you convince the other prisoners to remain in their cells, but his question was this, what must I do to be saved? The most important question that anyone can ask. And without question, it is the most important question to get the right answer to, because there is a multitude of wrong answers to that question but we know that there is only one right answer. That's the question that that Paul is addressing right now in these verses as he's examining the question of why it is that the Jews came to the wrong answer and pursued the wrong answer, refused to accept the right answer. He's discussed in some detail in in this passage Uh, that it was ultimately because of God's sovereignty and God's sovereign choice to, to powerfully save some of them, some of the Jews, but not all of them. And God, we have seen, has sovereignly chosen to powerfully save some Gentiles, some of the non Jews, but not all of them. It is God's choice, we've seen that. He has the authority to make that choice based as he does on his good pleasure. Then in our passage last week, he put forward the reason from a human perspective that this has happened. He said it was because the Jews, and we read this this morning as well, is because the Jews have sought, have pursued, he says, a right standing with God through their own works. That's a wrong answer. But they pursued it through their own efforts, and therefore, as we saw last week, they failed. They have stumbled, we learned, over Christ, over the true and only cornerstone and foundation of salvation. They have taken offense at the one who could save them, and they've refused to come to him and receive life. Christ 
He just makes it too easy. But in doing so, he, he removes every opportunity for man to take credit for his salvation. And that didn't sit well with the Jews. And that actually sets up for us the, the dichotomy of religion. You can try to come through God or come to God through your own efforts. You can try to save yourself by pursuing a righteousness according to the law, but in the end you'll be lost. Or you can entrust your soul to Jesus Christ and let Him save you and live. Because Jesus, Paul said at the end of verse 4 here in chapter 10, He is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Because He has done everything. He has provided everything needed to put you in a right light in God's eyes. And now Paul is going to expand on that in what we're going to see this morning. In this passage, he presents a contrast between righteousness according to the law and a righteousness according to faith between the law and the gospel, a contrast that was very much in the foreground of the minds of the Protestant reformers of the 16th century. The contrast here, as I say, is between the righteousness that comes through keeping the law and the righteousness that that comes through faith in Christ. And the question that I want each of you to consider this morning is, whence comes your righteousness before God? Which of those choices have you made? And it's such a critical question because righteousness is at the same time what God requires and it is something that manifestly we do not possess on our own. Paul and the teaching of Scripture in both the New and the Old Testament comes down to these two choices, two words, the word of the law and the word of the gospel, a word of righteousness through the law and a word of righteousness through faith. And that's what we're going to look at this morning, are these two words. We're going to look at the law, which we'll see as a severe word to us, And we will look at the gospel, which we'll see, and it's in your outline there, is a near word, it is a dear word, and it is a sphere word. Hmm. We'll have to explain that one when we get there. But first, the law. First, this severe word. Paul is really explaining and expanding here on his statement that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And he again, as he seeks to explain all of this, reaches back for support for his teaching back to the Old Testament scriptures. We've seen that over and over again in in these chapters. And again, he comes to Moses. In verse 5, he says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Now, his statement there is fairly simple, and it is quite devastating to anyone who would try to come to God this way. It is a severe word because it is a demanding word. 
The righteousness that is based on the law, he says, the the person who, who decides to go that route is free to do that is free to pursue righteousness that way. But the person, he says, who does the commandments shall live by them. That's a quote from from Moses writing back in Leviticus 18, verse 5. And the point that Paul draws from it here is that the person who wants to take this, this route to righteousness before God must get it right. Always. The person who wants to live by the commandment must be the person who does the commandments, who fulfills them. That's the message of righteousness through the law. Do this and live. Doing produces life. Blessings are contingent on obedience and on perfect obedience. Now, that's not too hard, some people might think. All you have to do is love God perfectly, without fail, without exception, and love your neighbor always. Well, we know the problem with that. The problem with that, as Scripture says, is that there is no one righteous. Not one. There is no one, 2 Chronicles 6.36 says, there is no one who does not sin. Your heart is wicked. It is sick. Your desire is for yourself and not for God. Well, then there's the great dodge in that. You say, perhaps, well, I can do pretty good. I'm not as bad as... Different people will fill in that blank with different uh, people. But the problem is that whoever you put into that blank isn't the standard. Isn't the standard that God judges by. The standard that God judges by is His law. And it is perfection that God requires. And the problem again is that you are not perfect. None of the Jews were perfect. No one is perfect. No one is able to be saved going down that path. Not in the Old Testament, not in the New Testament, not ever. Man's doing is always inadequate. All have sinned and fall short of that which would bring glory to God, of that which God requires. Man's pursuit of righteousness according to God's law always falls short of that standard. And that's not good enough. It's often been said that God does not grade on a curve. He does not judge on a curve. Moses also wrote this. Paul quotes this in Galatians 3.10 that all who rely on works of the law, he says, are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident, he says, that no one is justified before God by the law. That's the severe word of the law. That if you are not perfect you're cursed. If you are not perfect, you are not good enough. 
You were under the curse of sin and the curse of judgment and the curse ultimately of hell. So the righteousness that is based on the law, as Paul begins here, the righteousness that comes as a result of you or me or anyone keeping God's law is a non-starter. And that is the message regarding self-righteousness, regarding the righteousness that is based on the law. And in the context of all of this, remember that that, that was the, the righteousness that the Jews had been pursuing. Pursuing but not attaining, verse 31 of chapter 9. says, Israel pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, but that they did not succeed in reaching that law. It is the path that all who reject Christ are in reality choosing. It is a path that leads not to God, not to righteousness, because we cannot provide it ourselves. But God, Paul says, offers an alternative. And that is the gospel. And the gospel is a word that, first of all, is a near word. That's the second focus we have this morning. The good news, literally, gospel means good news, is that there is another way. In contrast to the righteousness that is based on the the law, which can never be ours, Paul now presents the righteousness based on faith. That is a righteousness that comes not by works, not by our efforts, but by grace received through faith as a gift from God. As Paul has been explaining in all these many chapters of the book of Romans that we've been going through these past, I think, 40 weeks so far. And Paul wants this righteousness based on faith to to speak for itself as he goes forward. And so he personifies this righteousness and says, here is what it says. This is how it speaks. Let's read it in verses 6 through 8. He says, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Now Paul, in this rather difficult little section here, strings together again two quotes from the Old Testament. The first is right there at the beginning of or the middle of verse 6, he says, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart. Now stop there. Just that little snippet. That little snippet, that little phrase occurs in the Old Testament, but it only occurs once. And the Jews, who were much better at memorizing their scripture and knowing their scripture than we are to our shame, they would recognize where that was from. It only occurs in one place in the Old Testament, and that is in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4. You know that the book of Deuteronomy is given by Moses to the people of Israel as they are getting ready to go into the promised land. It involves a second giving of the law, which is what Deuteronomy means. And in chapter 9, as part of Moses' speech to the Israelites, as they're camped right there on the east side of the Jordan, they can see the promised land, they're getting ready to go into it. 
Moses is giving to them things to remember. He doesn't get to go in, remember, because of his, his unbelief, because of his misrepresentation of God. But he's, they are going to, and so he gives them things to remember. And particularly, he says to them that when you go into the promised land, and when the Lord, as he has promised, drives out all of your enemies, when he gives you rest in the land, he says to them in Deuteronomy 9, Do not say in your heart, it is because of my righteousness. See, there's why Paul pulls that in, because it's showing that the the gifts of God, the rest that God gives, the, the promise that God's fulfilling, is not because of their righteousness. And Paul brings that to the mind of his readers by saying, simply, do not say in your heart that that's the way faith speaks. Because the promised land was a gift, wasn't it? They didn't earn it. It was a promise. He says, don't, he says, don't attribute the blessing that God is giving you in the land here as something that, that is dependent in any way on anything in you. So a very pertinent introduction here as he goes forward. Then the rest of verses 6 through 8 is an interesting loose quotation. There are some scholars who say it's so loose and Paul sort of takes liberties with it that so much that he's probably not really quoting it. He is quoting or using the sense of the passage in the Old Testament to make his point here, and that's possible. But it's a loose quotation at best, interspersed with comments by Paul as he goes through it, for the purpose of of bringing the original quote or the sense of the original quote into Paul's own point that he wants to make here regarding the righteousness that is based on faith. The passage that he is quoting is, again, from the book of Deuteronomy, but much later in the book, in Deuteronomy 30. And in Deuteronomy 30, again, part of this speech that, that, that Moses is giving, and he's talked about what will happen if, if they go into the land and they do what God calls them to do, the blessings that they'll receive, but if they don't, the curses that they will receive. And through all of that, in, verse, or in chapter 30, he reaches way back to the beginning in chapter 6 in, and verse 6. You remember chapter 6, Hear, O Israel. The Lord your God, the Lord is one, and then it goes on. And part of the way it goes on in verse 6, God says, All and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. In chapter 30, then, he says that his word, these commands that he is giving to his people, are not far away from them, that you have to go searching for them. He says, It is not in heaven, this is from Deuteronomy 30, he says, It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. So the nearness of God's word is the point of that passage in Deuteronomy chapter 30. 
And Paul sees in this also a reference to the the rest of the Word, the other aspect of the Word of God, the Gospel that he is talking about, that righteousness that comes by faith and the announcement of that righteousness in the Gospel. And he very skillfully here uses this passage to speak of the nearness of the Gospel, the ease of the Gospel. And to do that, he adds his own comments And he restates part of the quote in a a different, but not too different, way. If you're looking at your Bible, which if you have it out, I hope you are, and you see in verses 6 through 8, you'll see that there are three parenthetical statements, three statements there within parentheses that come after each of the quoted phrases. Because Paul is associating the nearness of, the, of God's word with the gospel and the righteousness that comes through the gospel, he interprets these phrases in the work of Christ and he applies them in the, in the, in the New Testament sense. He says in verse 6, But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down. Now remember, in Deuteronomy 30, that was a way of saying that you don't have to go to all of these uh, impossible lengths to, to come up with, to, to be exposed to the Word of God. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying, who, who is going to go up into heaven and get Christ and bring him down? Who has to do that? Who has to coax him? You don't have to do that. You don't have to bring him down to to, to bring and to be God's word and God's promise to us. No one has to do that. Christ has come of his own accord. He has come to be the end of the law. He has come to bear our guilt and to redeem us as his people. And in verse 7 he says, "Or, "...or who will descend into the abyss." Now, that's different than what Deuteronomy said. Instead of who will go over the sea, Paul traces this distance in another direction and for a specific purpose. The direction isn't out there across the sea. It's down there. It's to the grave. Now, there was a great deal of overlap in Jewish, the Jewish conception of the sea and the abyss. And so that's why he said this is not too different of a use here. And it's appropriate because of the obvious connection with the work of Christ. It is this which Paul brings out in his parathetical statement where he says, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. You don't have to go into heaven to bring him down. You don't have to go into the grave to bring him up from the dead. A reference, obviously, to the resurrection. Again, we don't have to chase our Lord into the grave and seek to bring him up that we may have the promise and the assurance of his word. The Lord is risen. He is risen as he said. He was delivered up, as Paul says in Romans 4, delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Raised that we might receive the righteousness that comes by faith. And so as God has said regarding his Old Testament word through which he established a relationship with his people through the law, so now in the New Testament with the advent of Christ, even more so, God's word is not far from us. His grace is not far from us. 
We need not contemplate having to, to do something to bring it to us that would be impossible for us to do anyway. And in verse 8, he says, well, then what does it say? If it doesn't say those things, what does it say? What does this righteousness, which is according to faith, what does the gospel say to us about itself today? And then continuing his quote from Deuteronomy 30, here he exactly quotes Deuteronomy 30, I believe it's verse 14, when he says, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. And then his his um, comment, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. The gospel, the, the means of the grace relationship that God establishes with his people, offering to them the righteousness of Christ that is obtained by faith. That word Paul is saying here in all of this is not a far word, not a distant word, but it's a near word. The word of the gospel the way to righteousness, the righteousness of God, which God gives freely in justification, is not at the end of a, a long effort, not at the end of a long life's work, but it is near. He says it is in your mouth and in your heart, quoting from Deuteronomy 30. I mean, that's about as close as you can get. And what is that word that is so close and so precious, that is so near? Well, Paul's third parenthetical statement there tells us very clearly. He says in verse 8, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. Then he says that is the word of faith that we proclaim. The word, the near word is the word of faith. The word about faith. The word about justification through faith alone for everyone who believes. The word which through the efficacious work of the Holy Spirit produces faith. The apostolic doctrine that Paul and the other apostles, as he says there, we are preaching. Present tense. We are continuing to preach. He says this word is near. It is in your mouth and it's in your heart. If, if he was not using this quotation from Deuteronomy 30, he might have said, it is in your ear and in your heart. The word of promise, the word concerning Christ, crucified, dead, buried, and raised again from the dead is a near word. It is near to Paul and his hearers. It is near to us today when faithful preachers stand in pulpits and proclaim the biblical doctrine of salvation through faith in Christ. No need to ascend into heaven or to descend into the grave to get it. No need to make any pilgrimage anywhere to get it. The gospel is a near word about a near God with near grace grace that is near. And because it is a near word, we look at in the third focus this morning, it is also a dear word. In verses 9 through 11, Paul continues to use Deuteronomy 30 as sort of his framework to discuss this. So he continues in a different order than what we might expect. 
He says, he speaks about the word being in your mouth and in your heart. And here is that word, this word of faith that we proclaim. And then verse 9 says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, if you look at the beginning of that verse, the ESV here says, because. The, the same word that's translated because is also very commonly translated that. And most other English translations use the word that, and I think that is better because this, in verse 9, is a description of the content of that word of faith that Paul and the apostles are preaching and that is very near to us. And again, it is if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He goes on and says, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And see, beloved, that is the dear word of the gospel, the precious word, the word to be held as the most precious thing apart from Christ himself, is the good news about Christ. The truth that all that one needs to do is to believe that gospel. To entrust yourself to Jesus Christ, believing in him, looking outside of yourself and away from your efforts, away from your work, and looking to Christ to provide every single thing needed to become a child of God. Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and who are laden with the cares of this world and the fear of what comes after. He said, believe in me and I will give you rest from all of that. Paul also mentions here, in fact, first mentions confession. He puts, Paul puts the mouth and the heart in the same order, as I, as I said, that they are in, verses, in verse 8, and the same order that they are in Deuteronomy 30. Now, when we see that, he says, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. We have to be careful and, and not misunderstand what Paul's doing here. He is not adding confession as a, another second requirement for justification. Paul has been, if anything, crystal clear throughout the book of Romans and elsewhere that justification comes about through faith alone. In chapter 1, verse 17. In chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. In chapter 3, verse 22. In chapter 3, verse 28. In chapter 4, verse 5. In chapter 4, verse 16. In chapter 5, verse 1. All specify that faith alone is the means of being justified. Of being pronounced by God. <clears throat> Confession with the mouth is simply the outward, the verbal expression of that faith which is in the heart. Just as in the church, we often speak of someone making a confession of faith. The church and the scripture know nothing of making a confession apart from faith. 
Faith and confession go hand in hand. And a true confession of Jesus as Lord can only arise from a spirit-worked faith in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 12.3, Paul says, No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And so confessing Christ and believing Christ are part of the same spiritual renewal by the Holy Spirit. One requirement, not two. But confession and even belief are only truly saving if they are the right belief. And if it is the right confession. And Paul makes that clear too. In Romans 10 in verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth, specifically, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then, he says, you will be saved. The confession here, the the necessary confession is not a mere confession, not a contentless confession, but a confession, Paul says, that Jesus is Lord. A recognition and agreement reflecting your belief that Jesus is Lord, which first means that Jesus is God. The word in the New Testament that's translated Lord is used in the Greek version of the Old Testament over 6,000 times to translate the name of God. To confess that Jesus is Lord is to recognize and to agree that all that God is, Christ is. It is to recognize and agree and to state the absolute deity and sovereignty of Jesus Christ. It is the central confession of the church. It's to recognize him as Savior in all of its fullness. We might add that to confess him as Savior and to confess him as Lord is the same thing. They cannot be separated. He is no Savior at all if He is not Lord. And this heresy of thinking that those two things can be separated is a pernicious error. The same Christ is both Savior and Lord. And everyone who would be right with God must confess out of a heartfelt conviction and belief, as Paul says, that God raised him from the dead. That is the unique identifying act of Jesus Christ, that he's the one who was raised from the dead. And we confess concerning our Lord that he was crucified, dead, and buried, and that he rose again on the third day. That belief is central to Christianity. There is no Christianity without belief in the resurrection of Christ, the bodily resurrection of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul includes belief in the resurrection as part of the gospel itself. And later in that same chapter, He makes the statement in no uncertain terms that if Christ was not raised from the dead, that there is no atonement. There is no redemption. 
He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is empty and you are still in your sins. That's how important belief in the resurrection is. It is an essential of the Christian faith. But you don't have to do anything about it. You don't have to make it true. You have to believe it. Faith is what binds you to Christ. Faith is what receives your justification. Christ has done the work. And God offers the benefit of that work to those who will simply and humbly ask. It is a dear word because it is not a word of labor, but it is a word of grace. Earlier in Romans, Paul said, Now to the one who works, his wages are counted as a gift. Or not as, sorry, but are, start again. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And here Paul echoes the assurance that whoever from the heart believes and relies on the person and work of Christ and therefore is drawn to confess that Jesus is Lord, that one, Paul says at the end of verse 9, will be saved, will be rescued, will be redeemed, will be justified. And then in verses, verses 10 and 11, he really just reiterates that truth. He says, for, so further explaining this, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Very general there, but he's setting us up for something that we'll see in just a moment. Very general, but very powerful, isn't it? He says, with the heart one believes and is justified. Again, we are justified by faith. By faith alone. He says, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Again, part of the same act, a reflection and an expression of that faith. And Paul says, this is the word of faith in verse 8. This is the word of faith that we proclaim. This is what the righteousness based on faith, going back to verse 6, says. And now Paul adds in verse 11 that the scripture says something. And here he quotes, we saw this quote last week, I think it was, from Isaiah 28, 16, that everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. What a great blessing that is. What a great thing to look forward to, that, that in the day of judgment, the one who trusts in Jesus Christ will not need in the slightest to worry that he will be put to shame in the judgment but he will most certainly be delivered from it because the same Christ that bore your sin therefore bore your shame. So just as there is no condemnation for you, there is also no shame for you before God. Now I mentioned that Paul was very general here in verses 10 and 11. He says, with the heart one believes. With the mouth one confesses. And he says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. 
And now he shows that not only is the gospel a near word, not only is the gospel a dear word, but the gospel is a sphere word. Now I said I'd explain that. Uh, It's a little bit of a stretch in order to make things rhyme, but you don't know how hard it is sometimes to make points rhyme so that they'll be memorable. It's not too much of a stretch, though. Right before the sermon, we sang a song that says, Crown Him with Many Crowns. And when we sang that, the last stanza says, Crown Him the Lord of Years, the potentate of time, creator of the rolling spheres, ineffably sublime. By the way, ineffably, we sing that all the time, and a lot of times people don't know what that means. It just means inexpressibly, which gives just a wonderful song that is. The creator of the rolling spheres. The rolling spheres are planets. Earth is a rolling sphere. Or it's just a sphere. So here the gospel being a sphere word is to say that it is a universal word. And that's his point. That's where Paul concludes. Notice verses 12 and 13. He says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call on him, for everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Remember again the context of all of this that we're looking at. Why have the Jews rejected the gospel? And how is it that the Gentiles have now been brought in and are receiving the gospel? The Jews failed to achieve the righteousness they pursued because they were pursuing it as if it were by works. The Gentiles, generally speaking, didn't. And now Paul says, because the righteousness which is by faith comes to everyone who believes, he says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Is that then just for Gentiles? No. Is it just for the Jews? No. Paul says the days of that distinction are over. They are over because Christ has come. He has become what Israel was called to be in the Old Testament, but never became a light to the nations. The gospel brings Christ as a light to the nations. Christ is that light. And the gospel, the word of faith, the word of righteousness that is by faith, has come. And it is near. It's not way off in heaven. It's not way down in the abyss. It is as near as the word of God being preached. And the word of God believed brings life. That's what Paul is saying. And it's true for anyone and everyone without distinction of any kind, Jew, Gentile, male, female, rich or poor, black, white, brown, any color, king or pauper, anyone. The thread that binds Christians together is not race or background or, or social stratus. It is being made in the image of God, being fallen people, being redeemed without reference to our works, saved by grace. It is that we all have one Lord. Paul says here, the same Lord is Lord of all. He told Timothy that there is one God and one mediator between God and men the man, Christ Jesus. There is one redeemed community composed of all who believe. 
We were all sinners. And Christians, we are all sinners saved by grace, by Christ. And just in case we didn't get all of that, Paul says that Christ is the Lord of all and that he bestows the glorious riches of his grace right there at the end on all who call on him. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what you've done. It only matters that you trust in Christ, that you believe in Christ, that you rest in Christ, that you look to Christ for your righteousness, not to yourself. If anybody under the sound of my voice has not done that, the word of salvation is near. God is near. Near to all who call on him in truth. If you have not done that, do that today. Do it right now. Trust in Christ. Believe in Christ. And as Paul said, you will be saved. And to that, let us say, Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the nearness of that word. We thank you for the simplicity of salvation. That we do not have to earn anything. We do not have to work for anything. The work's been done. The earning has been done by your son. We simply believe it. And we thank you that you have made it that way. For we know that that's the only way that we can be saved. We pray, Father, that you would bless us. We pray that you would remind us of the great gift that our salvation is. And again, Lord, if there are any um, who have heard this, Father, who have not yet trusted in Christ, we pray that you would be gracious to use these words toward that end. And we ask it for the sake and the glory of our Savior Jesus. Amen.